Welcome to a special edition of National Security Law Today. And hello from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and welcome to episode 142 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you as always by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas, but this time very happily also by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security, for we are live, recording live anyways, at the annual review of the field conference. It's a live and large audience, which makes us a little more nervous, because normally Steve and I are entirely alone in his office, not thinking about the fact that someone's actually listening to us. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's Friday morning, November 8th. It's 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. But wait, it gets better. I'm Yvette Busico. I'm Elisa Poteet. And because we're lawyers, I need to give a disclaimer. Um, we are here, Yvette and I, in our individual capacity and not be on, be on behalf of any agency or firm. All right, we're oh, off right. like a herd of turtles. Whereas we are here officially on behalf of the state of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so we are, this like is, um, thank you audience for making some noise and verifying for our listeners that we are indeed in front of our friends and colleagues. All at, seven of them. <laughs> at the ABA uh, National Security Law Conference that Elisa and I have been touting vigorously for months. And we're all here networking, learning more things about national security law. Freaking out. Fre yeah. Freaking out. And having a good time. So let's jump right into the topics. Right, By so the way, we're a, we're a guest-driven podcast, so Yvette and I are the questioners. Um, who better to ask questions of than these two guys? And Steve and I are a humor-driven podcast, and we're going to rely on you two to actually know things and say smart things for the benefit of the audience, or else we won't earn the CLE credit. Um, <laughs> so we're going to start topic one. We're going to start downrange in Syria and Iraq, where the United States is uh, suddenly maybe back in the detention business, if only on a small scale and if only perhaps on a temporary basis, uh, thanks to uh, two individuals being referred to as the Beatles. And uh, we might even be back in a... Uh, Oil field security business is something I read about recently. We might talk about that as well. What else have we got? Um, we're also going to check in on a trio of surveillance-related authorities that are due to expire in about a month. Um, and it's really interesting because some of these authorities, the uh, Trump administration has said, are not actively being deployed, but they're asking Congress to renew them anyway. Interesting situation there. I also hear there's stuff going on in the courts with national security. Something, there's something some, like so, the something. Supreme Court? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The highest court in the land? Yeah. <laughs> um, so the Supreme Court has some stuff going on. Uh, the D.C. Circuit has some stuff going on. The military commissions, our old friend, um, well, 40 years from now, at the 69th Annual <laughs> Review of the Field, we'll still be talking about the military commission trials of the three current you know, sets of defendants. You've got a date in one of those courts coming up soon. What? When's your oral argument? Tuesday. In Hernandez, the cross-border shooting case. That's why, I'm he that's why I'm here and not prepping. You mean denial. You told them you were, you were in town for the conference and you'd be willing to go over to the court and you argue know, while you were You want to see me while I'm there. Right, yeah. Exactly. If only, if only I were getting such a friendly reception on Tuesday. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll warm you up. Okay, we'll warm you up. All right, and 40 years from now, we'll be underwater. So my job is as the long-term Not thinker. in Texas. <laughs> Not in Texas. Well, maybe. Um, so I guess my job or my role is to be the long-term thinker. I think the single greatest national security threat to the United States is our short-term thinking. Um, I think that the two major issues that we're going to see in the long term is the climate is changing. Uh, and uh, you will find out if you've listened to our podcast that the military is getting ready for that. See, this is why you got to kind of love the military. They're thinking ahead. They're dealing with facts. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is, has anybody noticed that the dollar has ceded its position as the global reserve currency? I don't know if anybody noticed that. It certainly was in the Financial Times. But what is that going to do to sanctions? And what is that going to do to our economic primacy if the dollar loses its strength? That's going to have major national security implications. So we're going to talk briefly about that. So we have a full hour, so let's, uh, let's get started with, um, with uh, topic one. That sounds great. And, and don't be surprised if we digress. It's a hallmark of the show that if something else interesting occurs to us as we're going, we can, we can divert ourselves. Um, sometimes you, you, you say hallmark. I say uh, uh, unintentional, accidental consequence of not prepping. <laughs> it, you made it sound like we prepped oh, yeah. a lot for this one. We don't want to give uh, false advertising. Well, I mean, listen, a, a million times, you know, 0. 0.0001 is a lot more than 0. 0.0001. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Well, uh, speaking of not necessarily being as prepared, don't you? 
Yeah, speaking of not being as prepared as we might want to be, we found ourselves after after years of uh, working by, with, and through local forces, in particular the SDF in Syria, with respect to detainee operations in theater and the fight against the Islamic State. Um, the recent precipitous uh, disengagement from our Kurdish allies, if we can put it that way, uh, gave rise to a, a serious detention policy challenge. Um, by way of context, and I'm mindful that many people in this room know this far better than I do, and indeed probably work on this from time to time, but roughly speaking, the status quo ante was that you have, depending on how you count them, in, in SDF custody at various locations around Syria, um, uh, a, a small, small inner core of about a thousand or so uh, foreign Islamic State fighters, that is many European citizens and, and otherwise, but who are from outside the immediate region, a larger group of, of Syrian or Iraqi foreign, uh, not foreign fighters, but local Islamic State fighters, and then an, a still larger group of the family members and, and hangers-on, the, the women and children as it's sometimes described, uh, who were affiliated with the Islamic State, but were also in custody. So you have these sort of concentric circles of, of particularly risky people, but risk throughout the, the chain to some extent. But for years, the status quo was we could get by without having to get directly involved in implementing the detention operations ourselves. From, from a legal perspective, boy, was that convenient because it, it enables us not to face a number of issues that became so familiar to us in the post-9-11 period. Uh, questions about whether and to what extent federal habeas corpus review would extend to these locations. And were courts to be able to engage in reviewing those detentions, would they conclude that the, uh, the bedrock legal assumption undergirding all of these operations, which is that some combination of the 2001 AUMF and the 2002 AUMF does indeed extend to operations against the Islamic State, would the courts accept that? Um, it just takes one habeas case to put that before a judge who might well say no. Now, we did nearly have that. We, we began going down that road with the uh, somewhat accidental case of John Doe, the dual U.S.-Saudi citizen who ended up in U.S. military custody when the SDF basically dropped him into our hands a couple of years ago. Um, it, it was clear, at least it seemed to me from the outside, that the United States was not trying to make a point of detaining a U.S. citizen in military detention. It was indeed actively trying to turn him over to, to another country. Um, it didn't seem, for whatever reason, they could bring domestic civilian charges against him. Ultimately, of course, being a citizen, he had access to the courts, and if he had not ultimately, ultimately been transferred, then we would indeed eventually have seen a ruling on the merits of the legal scope, the scope of our legal authority to detain, and by extension, the scope of the conflict itself. That went away. We don't have other visible cases. The occasional detainees that we have gotten that you occasionally hear about end up getting transferred back to the United States uh, for prosecution or else turned over, presumably usually to the Iraqi authorities for prosecution in the Iraqi system. Then comes this falling out with, uh, or this accommodation with Turkey and the need to withdraw support from that particular border region and thus put the Kurds in a difficult spot. For a while there, it looked very dicey. I don't claim to know what the current exact situation is, but we do know this, that there were a certain number of high-value detainees, and in the midst of the turmoil of that separation, there was, for a brief moment, talk about how the United States was going to secure sort of the, the most high-value of the detainees that were in that exposed region. And then we're told from the public reporting that what we, what we ended up able to get our hands on were the two formerly British citizens who were the, the remaining members of the so-called Beatles, uh, British Islamic State uh, members who were associated with and believed to have been involved in some of the most heinous atrocities, which is really saying something with this group. We've now got them, presumably in Erbil. Um, it seems pretty clear that if the evidence is going to be available, we will bring them to the United States for civilian prosecution. Um, but, it, but it hasn't happened yet, and that may be because we're waiting to see whether the Brits will be able to provide us the information that they have. There's litigation in the United Kingdom that's pending in front of their now Supreme Court, as, they, as they've begun to call it, the former House of Lords procedure, um, as to whether or not there is a human rights obstacle to providing information about these former citizens, given that there could be death penalty on the table if the United States uh, does indeed prosecute these individuals. 
So to step back and just highlight where we're at, it depends on the path forward over time with these detainees. One possibility is that they're brought to the United States for prosecution maybe this afternoon, maybe within a month, and it just turns into yet another opportunity for DOJ National Security Division to do what it does every time, which is win these cases very reliably in our ordinary civilian courts. Could be, although I don't think this is likely, could be someone decides to send them to the military commissions. I think that's very unlikely. We could talk about whether that's a good idea. No. So Steve, Steve <laughs> unpredictably comes out against this. Uh, you are too. I'm against it as well. Okay. I just think it's more obvious when you do it. <laughs> See, this even, is, even, a, even a stop clock is right twice a day, right? That's right. This is when I wish it wasn't a podcast but a TV show. Um, other possibilities, though, let's imagine that the uh, UK Supreme Court comes out, as I do not think it will, but imagine it comes out and decides that they can't provide the information, and let's further imagine that actually that turns out to be dispositive. Because I do wonder about this. I don't know quite why we might still be waiting if it doesn't perhaps have a big impact on the reliability of our ability to prosecute. Um, I say that mindful that these guys have given effectively jailhouse interviews, at least on a couple of occasions, to reporters where they say all sorts of inculpatory things, at least if you want to nail them on a material support charge. Um, the trick is getting the capital punishment option or the life sentence option for the murders that, that they seem very likely to have been involved in. I think that they've gone out of their way to try to deny involvement in. It could be that there's something about that UK litigation that's dispositive on whether we can get that particular approach in motion. And meanwhile, it could all get hung up for a while. At a certain point, the question will arise, uh, will habeas litigation begin? And they're not citizens of the United States. They're not British citizens anymore either. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm, they may be stateless at this point. I don't quite know the, the full ins and outs of it. But Steve, kind of a question for you. If at a certain point it begins to seem suddenly that nothing's happening, they're just in status quo detention, military detention, um, will the courts have jurisdiction? Uh, good question. Uh, I'm not sure anyone knows for sure. So the, you know, the, the jurisdiction stripping provisions of the Military Commissions Act of 2006 which, you know, in case you haven't memorized it, is 28 U.S.C. section 2241 E1, um, would in theory apply, right, to the detention of a non-citizen outside the United States in this context. Um, that wasn't the case in John Doe's case, because John Doe is a citizen. But we have the D.C. Circuit in the Amr case in 2014 saying that Boumediene had the effect of returning habeas jurisdiction to the pre-2005 status quo, that is to say, where the statutory question was what controlled, um, the pre-MCA statutory question. In that context, there would be habeas jurisdiction under Rizul. So I think it'll be a serious litigation question. How does that relate to Al-Makala, which, which had held that there was not habeas jurisdiction over detainees held at the DFIP in, in Parwan? Yeah, so Al-Makala, uh, the two Al-Makalas, right, two different DC decisions, um, neither considered the statutory argument because they were both pre-Amr. Um, right, that the, the holdings of both Makala cases is that the suspension clause does not extend to detention in Bagram. Um, there was no consideration of whether you even needed to reach that question because the statutory argument wasn't made. So I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's likely, like more likely than not, that the courts will say there's no jurisdiction under the MCA jurisdiction stripping provision, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the DC Circuit will say actually the MCA's jurisdiction stripping provision is off the boards thanks to Boumediene and Amr, and so the question's only statutory. I think there's, just, there's enough litigation risk that I think this is going to be a mess either way if we do end up in protracted habeas litigation. Do you, do you think they, there should be? I mean, set aside what the, the predictive, descriptive case would be. Normatively, should, should federal courts decide whether or not um, the AMF applies vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic State, and if so, whether these two individuals factually have enough connection which I think they do, but um, should courts be the ones deciding that? Or yes. given? Uh, all right, so no, wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is in theater. These, these, are, these are combatants in an ongoing military operation. And so they'll lose. So they should lose. But what if instead of relying all this time on our local proxy forces, we'd been the one implementing all this? And so we're talking about tens of 10,000 at least individuals. Would we is it really sensible to have the courts deciding in each of those cases whether we've got the evidentiary basis? Because not all of them are going to be as high profile and visible and easy to document, having talked to reporters about their Islamic State involvement, 
as these guys who definitely would lose. So I, mean, I feel like I feel like we're ha- I feel like it's deja vu all over again. This was the conversation in two thousand and three and two thousand and four and two thousand and five, two thousand six. And I think the answer. So I have two answers. First is um, I don't think it would be that many cases, right? But second is you know look at the success rate of the Guantanamo detainees once habeas was finally established, right? And that is to say. You know, we don't talk about the statistics that often. My, my friend Ben Wittes, who I saw sneak in in the back, um, right, he and I used to have this big running fight over the scorecard um, in Guantanamo habeas cases. Um, if you actually peel away sort of the math of the 61 Guantanamo detainees whose habeas cases were adjudicated all the way to a final judgment after Boumediene, so this is after 2008. This is after years of the Bush administration releasing detainees who they either didn't think they needed to hold any longer or perhaps didn't think they should have held in the first place. The people still at Guantanamo after 2008, of the 61 habeas cases that reached a merits determination, 30 of the detainees won. Um, and so, yes, I think that the logistical difficulties are outweighed by the liberty interests in not being wrongly detained as an enemy combatant. So but I, don't, I, don't I don't know that scales, naive. though. I don't think it'll scale to more than a thousand plus Islamic State fighters, or, or in this, they would then become alleged Islamic State fighters, and the government would have to prove by preponderance of the evidence that every one of them is is in fact that status. But, but I think it's telling that we haven't. I mean, I think it's I think it's quite revealing that that hasn't been the U.S.'s approach, um, that despite this president's, how shall I say, greater affinity for Guantanamo than his predecessor, um, right, that we haven't seen any new, I mean, the delta of Guantanamo detainees is minus one, right? We haven't seen any new efforts to have broad U.S. detention operations in other parts of the world. And I think that's, that's not because of the specter of judicial review, right? I think it's because we've learned lessons about how those kinds of broad mass detention programs are antithetical to our interests, are counterproductive, are expensive, are not necessarily useful. So I, as you know, I I agree that not only is it a long-term lesson that this president has clearly had to encounter recently, the last president uh, had encountered, although I will say that it's always, I think, a little qualified to talk about our prior president as having been uh, against military detention because, of course, his administration did very vigorously defend the status quo of detention they just didn't want to bring on new people. But that goes back to the Bush administration as well, yeah. right? So this is, this is a more than a decades-old phenomenon. And cross-partisan. Yeah. But, but I think a linchpin of it is that there is an alternative that's, that addresses our security interest. And in the Iraq-Syria context, where we have a real deal, there's no doubt about it, that's an armed conflict, and there are large numbers of combatants who are, who are needing to be incapacitated. It, at least, you know, a thousand, I don't know what the right number would be, but I'm guessing it's, it's well north of a thousand at this point. Um, you do need to have a mechanism to keep them off the battlefield while the armed conflict continues. And where the SDF's able to do it, great. So we've been able to act by, with, and through them. If we stick it to the Kurds, which we are, have partially, it seems, now done, um, and that becomes a less reliable and sustainable mechanism, I wonder where we're, where we're left. I agree. No, I, mean, listen, I, I don't mean to say that this is an easy question. I just think that the, the lessons of, of the last 18 years ought not to be lost on us in thinking about how to answer it. Can I just know something? In the DOD presser, which if you don't regularly read these, of course, they're, they're easy to, to find, DOD press releases, you can get them sent right to your email inbox. It's always worth scanning through them because occasionally you will get these national security legal issues. They get asked about, um, the, the spokesperson of course is not going to get into any kind of interesting weeds, but occasionally there's some interesting factual uh, information put out there. And in, in a recent one, there was a description about the al-Baghdadi raid, and, and at the very tail end of the presser, there's a question about, uh, did we take any captives off the objective? And the spokesperson said, yes. And I don't know, I'm sure some people in the room know what the details are on that, but I find that rather interesting because I've not heard another word about it since and you don't hear any public discussion about it. Um, Are there additional detainees we could and should be talking about right now? Uh, Possibly. Maybe it's just uh, you know family members or something like that. No, no, but it's a sign of where we are that if you ask someone, you know, how many uh, individuals are currently in U.S. military detention um, as enemy combatants or some's equivalent in the world, right? I have no idea what the answer is. It's an interesting question to ask. It's certainly a stark contrast to where we were 10 years ago. It's, on the other hand, historically the case that you would never have any idea really except maybe very... Yeah, in 1994, very, we sure had a lot of people in military detention all over the world. When we fought conflicts comparable to our battle against the Islamic State and our military deployment and activity in Syria, 
in, in years past, um, you know, we didn't have sort of a running tab like we've gotten used to with the Guantanamo. No, we just had Red Cross access. We had, we had status review here. It's under Article 5 of the Geneva Convention. You know, we just had that whole compliance with international law thing going on. I'm very convinced that we still have Red Cross access. I'm certain that that's the case. I don't think we are denying Red Cross access to anybody. All right, on that note. <laughs> um, Everybody loves a good sunset. They're lovely, aren't they? But is anything about to sunset that we'd like to talk about today? Nah. Okay. Oh, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so December 15th is National Cupcake Day. Did you know that? I keep close tabs on these things. Um, it also is the day of the sunset for uh, a trio of important or maybe not important authorities. Uh, we just had a hearing with some of yesterday's panelists. Um, I imagine this came up a little bit in the discussion. A little bit. Uh, when Liz and, uh, and Jamil were going back and forth. What's at stake here? Um, Section 215, the FISA business records provision, the lone wolf uh, modification to the form power definition for FISA purposes and roving wiretaps. Um, of those three, clearly Section 215 and the extension of it that we now think of as the USA Freedom Act's version of call detail records acquisition, what, the, the descendant of the bulk phone metadata program, that's the main thing. That's where all the action is and understandably should be. Let's not forget that Lone Wolf and uh, Revin Wiretaps are in the mix as well. I I'm curious whether you all think that um, it's right to say that Lone Wolf and Revin Wiretaps, they're, they're very interesting, there's debate and discussion, but they're not politically salient like call detail records and 215. No, I think like the, the um, disclosures after uh, Snowden leaked the metadata program, it was personal and it touched everybody, right? It was of concern that people's data would be swept up. I don't think that people have the emotional response to uh, lone wolves that happen to be, you know, being monitored. They're trying to evade surveillance. I don't think anybody has the visceral response that they did before. But, you know, it's still part of, I think one of the reasons that these bills sunset is because we need to engage in the debate about it. And that's one thing you know, the legality of the disclosure notwithstanding uh, that the Snowden revelations, um, you know, sparked and the sunset um, provisions also spark continued debate. So should we have these? It seems like some of these are useful. Um, it seems like the more um, prolific of the programs is, uh, is, is dormant according to um, disclosures from the government. So the question is like, what should we do? Should we just, I mean, I know that there's a reluctance for, um, for Congress to grant powers to the executive if they're not being used, right? So we experience that a lot in government. Make sure you use the authority or Congress will take it away. Um, it provides perverse incentive for people to act sometimes not in ways that are um, necessarily, uh, um, you know, rational because you're concerned that Congress is going to strip the authority away. So that you can see that there is an administrative imperative uh, the administration's imperative to um, to pursue these uh, these authorities, but should we? Do we? Do they need it? I mean, it also it also puts the government in the awkward position of saying we absolutely need this authority. Oh, when was the last time you used it? Never. Yes. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I guess I, I have, as I think the last the last topic might have revealed to folks who didn't already know this. I have a somewhat idiosyncratic view of of this topic and sort of the overall structure of national security law, which is. I'm not uncomfortable with the idea of giving the government authorities, even ones that it won't need very often, as long as there are meaningful mechanisms to ensure that the authorities aren't abused, right? So, you know, the phone records program is a good example of this, right? That, you know, I don't think the failure of the phone records program was Congress writing Section 215 the way it did. I think the failure was the FISA court not pushing back when the government stretched the interpretation beyond what I think was reasonable, and indeed beyond what the Second Circuit ultimately concluded was appropriate. Um, so, you know, my reaction to this is, if the government can make a, a plausible case that there are circumstances maybe that we haven't seen that often, where these authorities might be very important and necessary, sure. Um, as long as we are having a serious conversation about back-end accountability, right? Like, that's the way that I think we avoid the specter of the, the Snowden-like scandal, right, which is take an existing authority, use it in a way that wasn't contemplated and that might actually have been unlawful, and not really find out about that until someone breaks the law himself to tell us about it. 
So I think there's, it helps to distinguish the two different dormant authority issues that are on the table across these multiple uh, issues that are sunsetting. On one hand, there's the kind of the simpler one, which is Lone Wolf. Now, Lone Wolf is the sort of reaction to Zacharias Moussaoui's case where you have someone who you believe is involved in international terrorism who is a non-U.S. person, has to be a non-U.S. person, and you just don't have the basis to link them to a particular identifiable foreign power that is an international terrorist organization. So you may know this person's, maybe they're inspired by Islamic State, but they're not actually an agent of the Islamic State, which is obviously a recurring scenario. Or in that case, you have reason to believe that Zacharias Moussaoui is involved in some kind of terrorist plot, that he is a uh, jihadi, but you can't really document it's tied to a particular foreign organization. The lone wolf model makes it possible if you can prove he's involved in international terrorism by the probable cause standard, the FISA court can still issue a Title I surveillance uh, order or a uh, wiretap order. Um, the government's acknowledged it's not used this authority, and so that's why it's fair to say, look, you're not using it. Do you really need this? Why don't we go ahead and prune that away just for, for the sake of cleanliness, if nothing else, and to avoid issues? Um, I think it's very interesting to pause and ask, since we know that Islamic State inspired but not directly con uh, agent-related uh, direction is, has been such a big issue over recent years, how can it be that the lone wolf model's not been used? I think it must be the case that what's actually happening within the FISA court system is that with Islamic State and Al-Qaeda inspired individuals who are not actually agents of those organizations, the, the orders are still being granted. It's just based on a very broad and loose notion, I would argue kind of a too loose notion of the organizational scope of the Islamic State. There's, it's just inconceivable to me that we're not actually surveilling some of these non-US persons who have these connections. It, it ought to be that we have a number of lone wolf use cases. The fact that we don't, I think, means that those are all being squeezed into an overly stretched organizational understanding of, of those two groups. So, so my own view is the, the real indicator here, the real problem here is not that we don't need the lone wolf provision, so we do need it. It's an indicator that maybe we're not using it the way we should and we're overusing the more traditional model. Um, but I see no harm in leaving it there and, I, and I've not seen anyone, obviously you can't argue it's been abused, has been used. Um, <laughs> Funny how that works. So, yeah. but I mean, I there are there are often circumstances where it's just cleaner, right? It's cleaner to prosecute under murder statute than try and like finagle some domestic terrorism, you know, theory of the case, right? It's just cleaner if you can stretch something that people are more comfortable with than it is to try and debut some new authority and then have it stricken down, right? So, I mean, there's also that friction that people who are thinking about or yeah. contemplating um, exercising this authority. That probably goes a long way to explain why I'm hypothesizing that there are these edge cases mm -hmm. that really fit under lone wolf. Sure. It makes sense that people might say, look, in, unless and until the other approach stops working, let's not worry about this. And, and they obviously haven't had that problem. It's almost like sunsets force Congress to have a meaningful conversation about what our national security authorities should be. It, like, like the hearing they had this week at Senate Judiciary. And, and the fight we had yesterday on the stage about the very same topic. This is one area where we definitely always agree. More conversation is good. Com coming to the other, I don't think the other one's dormant. I think what we're talking about with the call detail records program, which to underscore is the call detail records program under the USA Freedom Act that Congress very thoroughly ventilated and chose to frame a certain way, not, not what was going on before. Um, we have the problem that the data, of course, is supposed to be held by congressional design, supposed to be held by the telecom companies, and they're supposed to pass through in response to the proper request. They're supposed to pass through the fruits of specific selector terms that have met the right standards. And famously, I guess it was last summer, summer 18, uh, we learned publicly that, in fact, there have been screw-ups, not on the government side, but on the company side, passing through too much information. And there, there turned out to be so much technical difficulty in trying to separate it all that NSA basically said, we're throwing up our hands and fleshing all that data. We don't have it. It's not that this authority hasn't been used. It was, it was testified this week that uh, there were 76 order or requests to the companies between 2015 and 2018, yielding a ton of records. It's that all that was flushed away in, in an effort to be extra careful from a compliance perspective. So I don't, think it, I don't think it's right to think of that as a dormant program. It's a program that is proving to be technologically very difficult to implement cleanly because of the way Congress designed it. That to me says that we should be having an interesting conversation about 
do we, do we really want to do it this way with the companies obliged to keep the databases and respond to the data calls? Is there something we could do to make it easier for it to work well? That's kind of a technical, good government sort of process, not a, let's just get rid of it, it's no good. Um, that strikes me as, as not the conclusion that follows from what we know. I mean, I would, I would say that I think there's a little bit of reluctance for um, private companies to interact with the government. Um, people aren't comfortable with it. You're not happy with, you know, the fact that you have to s surrender your call records to Verizon. You don't expect the, you know, the government to be able to hoover up that data. I think that's why it touched such a nerve with the, um, with the public, right? And so I think there's also something that we have to ac account for, which is, you know, like people, our companies go out of their way to say we only comply with you know um, subpoenas. We only comply once we're forced by process of law because they don't want to be. They don't want to make it easier to to work with governments. There there's a there are you know a, just a number of of instances where uh, like the iPhone case for example where iPhone refused to crack the um, uh, crack crack open an um, and or um, unlock an iPhone a while ago, and it was a, it was a pretty serious case. And eventually, the government was able to unlock it itself. But that kind of, I think that um, that friction also needs to be accounted for. Certainly, the uh, change in the sea change in the private sector's willingness to cooperate on the in, in things relating to communications mm -hmm. from sort of the mid 20th century model of very tight and cozy cooperation. Um, versus the model today where companies compete on privacy and very much are responsive to, to the, the lessons many companies learned the hard way after Snowden and the revelations there. That looms really large. If there's, if there's one thing I would want everyone in this room to remember from this discussion, though, it's, it's the following. Uh, you can find the podcast at... <laughs> <laughs> we still have some swag for sale. Actually, we don't sell our swag. We should give it away. Um, it's this, uh, the Section 215 Business Records Sunset is not just about the Call Detail Records Program. That's the bright, shiny object and everyone's treating it like it's the one thing. There are a lot of people who feel like that program's, as, as David Chris once said, maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze and there are a lot of people who are very hostile to it in general. Be that as it may, that's all fine, but don't lose sight of the fact that, that the renewal is tied up in also the renewal of the scope of 215 itself. 215 is not coextensive with call detail records. It's a general quasi-administrative subpoena-like authority that prior to the USA Patriot Act in October 2001 was super narrow in scope. It was only relevant in, in certain limited fact patterns where the information sought was directly related to the target as opposed to being highly relevant related to people who are associated with the target. That wasn't in scope before. Had to be the target's information, had to be a common carrier or a storage facility or a vehicle rental facility. It's all these lessons learned from mid-90s World Trade Center 1 type investigations where those were the kinds of things that were relevant in the fact pattern for the foreign intelligence that sorry the counterterrorism investigation patriot act expanded it so that it was applicable in a broader set of circumstances it didn't matter what type of entity it was the question was did you have relevance to a terrorism investigation or foreign intelligence investigation or counterintelligence investigation I don't, I've not seen anybody making the argument that, no, the, the foreign intelligence, counterintelligence, and international terrorism investigative context, when they don't overlap with criminal law, should not have this authority, even though any grand jury could get all these documents, though plenty of civil administrative agencies could get these documents. I don't know anyone who's really making the case that all this has proven to ever have been abused, to have been a mistake, not have been useful. And yet, if it is not renewed, that's what it's going to snap back to. It's not just the call detail records that goes away. It's going to snap back to pre-Patriot Act. And I don't know if Congress is sufficiently focused on that fact, and I hope they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater if, indeed, you think the call detail records are the bathwater. All right, and that seems like a good place to shift gears because we're, you know, trying to be cognizant of time, and we have to go through uh, the Supreme Court cases that are coming up. We do we have to? Plenty yes. of time for yes, that. Yes, we do. You, you literally have to. I, I exactly. have to. Do we all have to? Um, so it's actually, I mean, I think it's actually a pretty quiet term so far for the Supreme Court in national security law. I mean, I, and I'm mindful that one of the panels this afternoon is actually more specifically about national security in the courts, and so I don't want to preempt them. Um, although I do want to sort of, you know, give them some hard questions. Um, but I, I think that the two big cases, I think already on the docket, 
that have obvious national security implications. The first is, for better or for worse, the case I'm arguing on Tuesday, Hernandez versus Mesa. This is the cross-border shooting of a 15-year-old Mexican teenager by a CBP agent. Um, and the reason why that has national security implications is because one of the arguments that the Border Patrol agent and the government as amicus have made for why there ought not to be damages liability in these cases um, is because uh, foreign relations and national security are a special factor counsel and hesitation. Um, and, you know, if you want to know what I think in response to that, well, we'll talk on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, the court's going to have to say something about that one way or the other. Um, and then the other, and I think this is actually a case that's not getting nearly enough attention, um, perhaps because no one can pronounce it, um, is Department of Homeland Security versus I, I'm going I'm to butcher the name, but I think it's, it's Thrasigium. It's a Sri Lankan last name. Um, this is a case about whether the suspension clause, um, which protects the right uh, uh, to judicial review via habeas corpus, um, applies in the United States to undocumented immigrants who are subject to expedited removal. Um, and this is the subject of a circuit split, the Third Circuit in 2016, um, in a case called Castro, had said the answer was no. Um, that undocumented immigrants, when they are placed into removal proceedings, are for legal purposes the same as arriving aliens stopped at the border, um, even if they're arrested well into the United States, you know, some time after they've crossed. Um, and the Ninth Circuit earlier this year said that's crazy and said yes, um, and this is the government cert petition. Um, and it'll be argued in March, and I think this is, you know, by far the most important suspension clause case that the Supreme Court has heard since Boumediene, partly because it's the only suspension clause case the Supreme <laughs> Court has heard since Boumediene. Um, I think it's not that hard to imagine that Justice Kavanaugh is going to feel differently about the suspension clause than Justice Kennedy, who obviously was the key swing vote in Boumediene, who wrote the majority opinion for the 5-4 court. Um, and I think it's not hard to imagine how, separate from the implications this case will have in the immigration space, um, a holding about the suspension clause that either reaffirms its applicability to everyone in the U.S. or doesn't um, could have serious ramifications for the national security space going forward. We should also note, if you, if you would, Steve, the, the case about the removal power. And uh, even though it's about the, the Consumer Finance Protection Board or CFPB, um, you know, you think about other contexts, including national security contexts, where the uh, head of the relevant agency, you know, think about FBI, for example, where there's always interesting questions, or, or so I'm told, about the president's ability to, to control that. Um, that. That never comes up. Who, never. What president would just willy-nilly fire senior executive branch agency heads for being insufficiently loyal? I can't imagine that. Never, never, never happens. Um, what's, so you're not even what's laughing. That's where we are, right? <laughs> It's like, that, that's a we funny joke. We at the ABA that's not are nonpartisan, bipartisan. <laughs> that's right. Yes, our reactions are nonpartisan. <laughs> um, so, so the, I mean, I, I, this, is out, this, was, this case was granted the same day as the suspension clause case. It's SAILA law, um, S-E-I-L-A versus CFPB. Um, and it's this complicated, intricate um, uh, separation of powers question about whether it is unconstitutional to have independent executive branch agencies headed not by a commission-like structure, like the FTC or the FCC or the SEC, but by a single director. Um, and what's awkward about this is that there are reasonable arguments factually for why a single director structure raises different kinds of questions than a multi-director or a multi-commissioner structure. But what's really going on here is that there's probably a majority of the court that doesn't like independent agencies at all. Um, and that might, if given the opportunity, just overrule Humphrey's executor, um, right? And so one way or the other, I mean, here's another area where I think Justice Kavanaugh's views are both well-known and quite distinct from those of Justice Kennedy. Um, Kavanaugh wrote one of the DC Circuit opinions sort of suggesting that single member, um, single director structures are unconstitutional. The ramifications if the court goes even part of the way could be significant for our understanding of Congress's ability, and this is what we're going to turn to, I think, at the end, Congress's ability to create more structural independence in the executive branch. This case could basically, you know, cut that off at the past by saying, actually, there's already too much constitutional independence simply by having a single person 
right, in charge of an independent executive branch agency like the CFPB. Do we, do we know where Chief Justice, we don't know, do you have an estimate where Chief Justice Roberts is on yes. this highly unitary executive themed I mean, issue? so Chief Justice Roberts wrote the, the opinion for the court um, in 2010 in the Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which isn't really an acronym for peekaboo, but we call it peekaboo because that's what we do. Um, and, and I think his opinion, even though it's a majority opinion, and so it's, he's writing for you know, the, the rest of the, of the majority, I think it's pretty much aligned with where I think, you know, where, where I think Justice Kavanaugh is. So I don't know that they're gonna go all the way to Humphrey's executor, but every step back Right, I think you know is a step toward a more unitarian view, which will I think further handicap Congress's ability. I think if it wanted to, to respond to some of what we've seen over the last three slash eleven years, depending upon one's perspective, um, with more you know sort of intra executive branch structural checks. Hmm. So good stuff. Um, and then really quickly before we finish with the courts, I should just say I do think that there are two larger sort of classes of national security cases that are making their way. Um, the first is, you know, we got to talk about the military commissions. I mean, I know that, like, it's nice to pretend that we don't care about Guantanamo anymore because we don't care about Guantanamo anymore. But um, if, you, if you haven't been following, the last four days have seen, by my count, five major headlines coming out of the three military commission cases going on. And I don't think I'm speaking out of school to say five headlines that were all bad for the prosecution. Um, right, I mean, the, the Nashiri case basically is being wound back three years. The Al-Hadi case was put on a stay by the D.C. Circuit um, on Tuesday. You know, the 9-11 case is in the middle of, I, I mean, I'm just going to make this up, but like the, the 40, the, I think it's the 39th pretrial session and like part three of 87 on the question of access to, you know, challenges to the torture of the defendants. So, you know, these cases are going to get to the D.C. Circuit at some point, and I think part of what we're seeing is the, the military commission judges themselves starting to maybe get the hint from the D.C. Circuit that there's trouble in, in, in Denmark. Um, and then there's the broader question of sort of cases where the government is acting in what it claims is the name of national security, but it looks increasingly clear that that's not true. Um, so we talked a bit about the Canadian steel tariffs, mm -hmm. right, and Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, that old chestnut, um, right, and, you know, the question of whether the president simply saying it's for national security and just doing that, um, right, is enough. Um, and I think, you know, you and I, I think, both would have said four or five years ago the courts would never look behind, right, the president saying the statute says it's about national security, I say it's about national security, we're done. It's not hard to look at this president and wonder if courts are going to start saying, maybe we don't take everything you say at face value. So ironically, then, this president with very bold positions on the scope of executive power might leave the executive branch much weakened through the judicial precedents ultimately created? I'm not sure that's ironic. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the historical pattern. I mean, I think the, the response to some of the broad assertions of executive power by President Nixon um, was unprecedented pushback by Congress and to a lesser degree by the courts. Um, and so I think, you know, I think this is not this year's headline national security cases, but the next couple of years, you know, just how much are we going to hold the executive branch to its stated reasons for doing something? I mean, that's laced through the DACA case, which the court's hearing on Tuesday. It's laced through the census case. I mean, it's, you know, and it's going to have dramatic national security ramifications, I think, regardless of how it ends up being resolved. Well, let's, let's relatedly, let's talk about that for a minute. News headlines um, of late have sort of looked at uh, in whose interest Article 2 authorities can be exercised. Um, what's in the Constitution on that score? Uh, it looks like in his first address to Congress requesting appropriations, George Washington, uh, for intelligence uh, efforts, um, George Washington mentioned his actions should be in the, in the common good. Um, what do you say, Steve? Um, sounds good to me. Um, so, I mean, I think, I, you know, I. The, there, there are lots of things I lose sleep over these days, and, and one of them is the sort of the blurring of the, the oath clause, for example, right? The president takes an oath to defend the Constitution. Um, everyone who works for the government takes an oath to defend the Constitution, not to be loyal to the president of the United States. Um, and I worry that, like, we are blurring some of those lines in ways that are important. Um, you know, I, I don't actually think we're in the middle of big fights over like inner branch disputes about Article 2. Like I think, you know, as contra, say, 13, 14 years ago, where there were all these pretty, 
you know, broad and aggressive claims by the executive branch that various statutes were unconstitutional insofar as they infringed upon the president's Article II powers. I don't even think that's where we are. Like, that's the chess version of this conversation. We're in the, I don't even know if we're in the checkers version. I feel like we're in the, the tic-tac, the go fish version. Um, right, because the problem is, is that I, I don't see the president or his lawyers making extravagant claims about Congress's statutory authority. Um, or the limits thereon, right? I think the, the, the biggest recurring fight we're seeing right now is um, extravagant claims about Congress's oversight authority, um, which, you know, of course has ramifications for our universe and for our field, but I think are, are less about the sort of scope of Article II or particular clauses therein, um, and more about just sort of, you know, how we balance Congress's clear constitutional authority to investigate the executive branch with you know, the protections of privilege and the like. I definitely think that's right. I think that the question in, a, in very sort of uh, subtle terms gets at this question of in the, as the president in pursuit of the nation's foreign policy or at least when acting in dialogue uh, in the foreign setting, acting as the sole organ of the United States, to borrow a phrase, um, are there limits there, even if not judicially enforceable limits, maybe enforceable in other settings, in particular, is it, is it a violation of the oath? Is it somehow incompatible with the Article II role to use that process to advance partisan political aims? Or personal financial interests. Or, yeah, even more so. So if you put it that, I think that's the easiest case, right? Is it? Maybe, I don't know. It's, they're both I, So I would have thought that was the easiest case. Yeah. Um, apparently, it's not as easy as I would have thought. So I think you see in some of the complex stew of things surrounding the, uh, the, the Ukraine situation and the ongoing battles over what are the issues, um, you see some moving goalposts. But one, one argument that some defenders of the administration have put forward at several points is, look, it, presidents are perhaps, the, the better version of the argument is to say, look, it may happen to be in his political interest to seek this, in, this corruption investigation, et cetera, of the vice president, former vice president's son, but it's all part and parcel of the larger pursuit you can't, of foreign policy aims. You can't disaggregate the two, so you just can't get into that. The more bold and, and, and I think more, even more ridiculous argument, though, is to argue that maybe it was. Oh well, that's that's unified power of the president. And I so, think that can't be the case. No, I mean, I mean, the, the example I use in class is imagine that imagine that we were under risk of of invasion, right, from a foreign power in a classical like wartime context, right? And imagine the president did nothing, right? Imagine he ordered the military to stand down. Imagine he didn't, you know. Imagine he actually affirmatively tried to make it easier for a foreign country to invade us, right? Um, I actually think. You could construct that hypothetical in a way where nothing he did was illegal and where nothing he did was a violation of a specific constitutional provision and would absolutely be impeachable, um, right? And this is, you know, I, I'm not saying that's where we are. I mean, I think that's an extreme look at the conspiracy yeah. theory view of where we are, right? But, you know, if you believe that there's an extreme case where a president doing nothing illegal and nothing unconstitutional in the field of foreign affairs and national security is still acting or not acting, in a way so deleterious to our interests as to be impeachable, then the question just becomes, is this such a case? So I would just say that I think then you could argue the oath has been violated. And so in, in that extreme case, there would indeed be at some level a constitutional violation. But if, I, I mean, if I'm the president and I reasonably believe that the best thing for the United States is to be taken over by Nazi Germany during World War II, <laughs> I, listen, okay. I'm just saying, like, you know, is it really a violation of the oath? Because, I mean, it's to uphold the Constitution. It's not to uphold the Constitution as interpreted by somebody else, right? So, so I just, I, I, the, the, point I, the point I'm trying to make here is we ought to be able to be comfortable with the idea that there is a class of impeachable conduct that exists wholly apart from being able to point to specific constitutional provisions or statutes that were violated. And, you know, I, I'm sure we're all going to disagree about whether what we're seeing in front of us is that class. But the notion that it's an empty set I think is an argument that, I just, that we just can't abide. Let, let's project forward, though, years from now, because I think the question of what the executive can do is the threat topography has changed. And the topography of the planet is inevitably going to change. So among the things that we see right now is we've seen... S says everyone except the president. Sorry. Okay. Okay, I accept that. Um, 
But I would say that we're looking at a, a, a globe and a planet right now that is warming faster than any of the scientific predictions heretofore, and that is a reality. Uh, we have done a podcast. We've been privileged to have Mark Nevitt, I hope he's still here today, uh, on our podcast to talk about the militaries, in particular the Navy's response to climate change. And yet, as we sit here today, portions of the Amazon are burning. Let's look forward. If it was determined that there were certain measures that a president could take, military measures, that the military could somehow prevent some climate catastrophe or mitigate it through the exercise of military authority, what would that look like constitutionally? Well, I mean, I think it, the, the circumstances would matter. I mean, I think part of it is I, I suspect that there are authorities the president could invoke under statutes. Um, to react to, you know, climate-driven crises. Um, so just to think of a couple, I mean, right, the Stafford Act is designed to deal with natural disasters um, and gives the president a whole lot of authority to respond in that context. Um, we talked briefly yesterday about the Insurrection Act. Um, if there's an argument to be made that using the military is necessary to ensure the execution of the laws of the Union in a climate context, I think, you know, that avenue is available, although obviously politically fraught. Um, and frankly, given, I think, some of the Article II arguments that the Office of Legal Counsel has made in contexts like Syria, I think there's not an implausible, uh, uh, it's, not a, it's not a implausible stretch from those arguments, which I have problems with, right, to the notion that the interests of the United States um, and collective self-defense and all of this stuff might also justify military action in that space as well. Yeah, th this highlights, uh, it's somewhat of a fanciful hy hypothetical, but it nonetheless highlights in a very useful way the, the dangers, the two-edged sword nature of taking extremely broad views um, of unilateral executive power to deploy the military for uh, kinetic uses of force overseas. Um, based on pretty nebulous notions of what's generally in the United States interests, so long as we don't have sustained boots on the ground presence, which was always a key part of both the, the Libya uh, and, and Syria uh, frameworks. I, you know, it, it sounds ridiculous to imagine a president saying, all right, we're going to deploy and we're going we're gonna to stop Amazon fires burning by you know, sending in the uh, 101st Airborne. But yeah, but better to send them to build a wall. Uh, well, I, uh, we won't go there, but, um, <laughs> but I, I think that the logic of those broad uh, frame, framings of Article II authority, you know, open up these sorts of possibilities. That said, I, I do think that the, the kind of more fanciful use of force to arrest climate-relevant things happening abroad, those things probably require boots on the ground, so I'm not sure they actually fit within that, that very broad OLC framework when you really imagine what it would entail. But, but I do think, um, but I do think the, the, the question, um, I do think the question does tee up, you know, sort of what are the big things to look for, right, in the next five, six, seven years that are not just sort of partisan, right, that are, that are, that are beyond the politics of the moment. And I think, you know, how the government treats, national, uh, treats climate change as a national security problem is a big part of that, and that's not just an executive branch question, it's also a Congress question. I think what kinds of separation of powers responses we see from Congress, um, if and when it decides to reassert some of its institutional authority vis-a-vis the executive branch is a big part of that story, and then how the courts react to all of that. Yeah. Okay, thank you. We're going to have to stop right there. I want to invite everybody to listen to the podcast National Security Law, National Security Law Today, where we have an extensive history on foreign influence campaigns, including the Nazi campaign. Uh, leading up to World War II, which resulted in the uh, prosecutions, essentially, of six members of Congress. How many of you knew that? We hope to see you soon. You can find all of us on Stitcher and iTunes and your app of choice. Thanks and some of us on here. Twitter. And uh, stay safe out there. Adios. Thank you. Thank you.